Vladimir Lenin's boorish behavior during the Second Russian Congress made him a pariah within the European Marxist community. He was soon forced to abandon his board seat on Iskra, the paper that he had started. A line in the sand had been drawn, splitting the socialists into two hostile camps. When a Menshevik passed a Bolshevik, it was common practice to cross the road in order to avoid them. Lenin explained his own participation in the practice as, when you see a stinking heap in your path, you don't have to touch it to know what it is. Your nose tells you it's crap and you pass by. Historian Victor Sebastian, our main source for this series, sums up this period in the dictator's life best by writing that when Lenin referred to the enemy, he didn't mean the czar or the autocratic regime. He meant his old friend and comrade Martov and the Mensheviks. In one of the greatest comebacks in history, Lenin will go from undesirable number one to the undisputed leader of the world's largest nation within the next 17 years. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is about the life and legacy of Vladimir Lenin, Lenin the Revolutionary. Lenin's own self-belief and confidence were unshakable, and the few individuals that stuck with him after his display in London worshipped the ground that he walked on. Lenin had become a living god to his loyalists, a fact that would lock in the practice of placing sycophants at every level of the communist bureaucracy. Lenin encouraged the practice, telling his wife, I don't want people with indeterminate views and shilly shallers Better a small fish than a big beetle. Better two or three energetic and completely devoted men than a dozen dawdlers. Still, it was a daunting task that their leader had laid at the feet of the Bolsheviks. They had to first take down the Romanov family, a dynasty that had ruled Russia with an iron fist for 300 years. Their family history included giants in Russian lore, including Peter and Catherine the Great. Under the Romanovs, Russia had westernized, transformed from a landlocked state to one of Europe's largest empires, and had achieved the status as the dominant power in both the Baltic and Black Sea regions. They were also the cause of their own downfall, necessitating us to stroll backwards through Russian history for a moment. A Bolshevik commissar put this journey into the past into context after they recommended honoring Tsar Nicholas II in 1918 with the highest Soviet honor. It was for his services in relation to his own demise. Truly, Lenin could not have succeeded in overthrowing the government without help from the Tsar himself. Every single decision that Nicholas made was definitively the wrong decision. Sebastian paints the last Romanov as, quote, a ruler totally unequipped for the role, writing that he wanted to be an autocrat that didn't look or sound like one. He lacked the personality, the intelligence, and the strength of will to be one. He was one 128th Russian, and his manners were impeccable, 
suggesting that he would have made an excellent ceremonial monarch. But Nicholas was thrust instead into the role of wartime leader. Alexander III, the Tsar responsible for executing Vladimir's older brother and thus the man who had set Lenin upon his murderous course, sidelined young Nicky from all regal responsibility, intending to train him for the position only once he reached the age of 30. The boy's tutor once revealed that the only thing he could remember about Nicholas was that he seemed completely absorbed in picking his nose. He became Tsar after the sudden failing of his father's health in 1894. One of his first decisions that he made on his own was to quickly marry the German granddaughter of Queen Victoria of England, a forbidden romantic interest that had intrigued the 26-year-old for nearly a decade. The new Tsarina took the royal name of Alexandra Fedorovna. Nicholas's father had held open disdain for Germany and had forbidden the learning of any outside language within his kingdom, particularly German. The newlyweds weren't exactly optimistic about their chances. The groom reportedly asked an advisor, What is going to happen to me, to all of Russia? I am not prepared to be czar. I never even wanted to become one. Meanwhile, the bride saw her happiest day as a, quote, mere continuation of the masses of the dead. The official coronation occurred two years after they had started their reign, during which time they hadn't spent growing into the responsibilities of the job. Alexandra wore a splendid gown to the ceremony that was brimming with expensive pearls and diamonds. Despite the fact that the vast majority of Russia's people were poor serfs suffering from a continuous state of malnutrition. The event turned out to be Alexandra's Marie Antoinette Let Them Eat Cake moment, during which the newly crowned rulers decided to celebrate with their people by offering coronation gifts of a bread roll, a piece of sausage, pretzels, gingerbread, and a commemorative cup. The abject misery of the Russian people was such that a massive crowd gathered in anticipation of free gingerbread. When rumors began to spread that there would not be enough free food for all of those that had gathered, and the surely false rumor that the commemorative cups each held a gold coin, a stampede occurred, injuring perhaps as many as 20,000. Officially, 1,282 corpses were removed from the grounds. We have first-hand knowledge of Nicholas' thoughts via his private diary about this event, which earned him the nickname Bloody Nicholas. He writes, Today there was a great mishap. The crowd staying overnight at Kodonka, awaiting the start of the distribution of luncheon mugs, pushed against buildings, and there was a terrible crush and awful to say, trampled around 1,300 people. I found out about it at 10.30. At 12.30 we had lunch, and went to be present at this sad national holiday. The Tsar's visitation was obviously the right thing to do in the moment of this national tragedy, but listen to the emotionalist description of what comes next for the hopeless leader. Nicholas continues, Actually, there was nothing going on, 
We looked from the pavilion at the huge crowd that surrounded the stage from which the orchestra played all the time the anthem and glory. He then went to a fancy state dinner and party against the advice of his court, before closing his diary entry with his final thought on the day, preserving for history his thought that the heat was unbearable. Less than a week later and before the Tsar and his wife visited any victims in the hospital, they reviewed military troops on the same grounds where 20,000 guests had been trampled. In the first decade of their marriage, Alexandra bore her husband five children, including their youngest son named Alexei, who bore his mother's genetic illness of hemophilia, a potentially fatal condition where one's blood fails to naturally clot. The boy was born in 1904, the same year that Lenin was reinventing his Bolshevik party after the split with the Mensheviks a year prior. The year proved incredibly important for Lenin's homeland, as it was during this year that Nicholas II began his disastrous Russo-Japanese War. Nicholas was the first Romanov to show significant interest towards the Far East. Since the time of Peter the Great, the entirety of Russian thought had been oriented towards their European neighbors. Nicholas's infatuation with the East had begun after he had visited Japan when he was 22 years old. The trip was undertaken in order to celebrate his father's creation of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, a project that promised to boost Russia's Pacific shipping corridor. Many in Japan, however, incorrectly assumed that the official visit of the Russian heir was a precursor to invasion. The thought was that the Russians couldn't be satisfied with ports that only remain open for six months out of the year. Despite the rumors, there was no great spycraft happening on the trip. Instead, the heir rode a rickshaw read a fictionalized novel about a Frenchman traveling to Japan in order to purchase an Asian wife, as well as getting a dragon tattooed on his upper right forearm, something he intended to keep secret from the purview of his controlling father. His diary proves that his intentions were those of a wealthy single man in his 20s, rather than a grand geopolitical scheme. Nicholas writes, that hundreds of geishas filled the city's narrow streets. The tea house's residents are brocade dolls and kimonos woven in gold thread. Japanese erotica is more refined and subtle than the crude proffers of love on European streets. The tea ceremony ends. All that follows remains a secret. The trip turned sour a few days after the conclusion of the secretive after-party with the geishas. Sando, a police officer and former samurai, had been assigned to guard the foreign dignitary. Sando had fallen for the conspiracy theories which claimed that Nicholas was a spy pre-planning the invasion. As the Russian was traveling to yet another tourist site, Sando jumped out of line, drew a foreign-made government-issued police blade, and landed a glancing blow on his charge's skull. Nicholas's life was saved by three factors. 
First, his hat received the worst of the blow. Secondly, two rickshaw drivers came to stop the assault by the uniformed police officer, subduing him immediately. Third, the foreign blade wasn't nearly as sharp as the traditional Japanese katana, which would have sliced the air's head off cleanly, allowing the world to confirm once and for all whether or not there were actual brains inside of Nicholas's skull. His head was left intact, but for the rest of his life he sported a 9cm wound and a portion of skull remained permanently chipped off, leaving him continually suffering from intense headaches. The attempt on his life remained at the front of his mind, as he required the Russian people to annually commemorate the anniversary of the assault by praying for his well-being. After he ascended to the imperial throne, Nicholas sought revenge via an expansionist Far East policy, bringing Russia into direct conflict with Japan's growing influence in the region. The Tsar mistakenly decided to side with the loser of the First Sino-Japanese War, adding Russia to the growing list of European powers that had forced themselves upon China's territory. In exchange for his support, Russia was authorized to extend the Trans-Siberian Railroad through Manchuria. Fearing encroachment, Japan launched a surprise attack in 1904, and the next year of the war would be filled with Russian missteps. Despite having an army that had a quarter of a million more troops in it, the Russians continuously faltered in the face of Japanese aggression. Fearing failure, Tsar Nicholas pushed more chips into the pot and fired any advisor that stood opposed to him. He even dissolved two parliamentary dumas based upon their advice that Russia should disengage from the conflict. Nicholas's stubbornness and failure to recognize the reality in front of him cost his nation deeply, resulting in Russia becoming the first European nation to ever be defeated by an Asian state. Midway through the war, another questionable figure made their way into Nicholas's court. Grigory Rasputin was a polarizing figure who earned labels such as wanderer, criminal, mystic, visionary, sexual deviant, political saboteur, prophet, renegade, monk, and religious charlatan. He came into contact with the royal court after he managed to display an unexplained ability to control Nicholas's son's hemophilia. The leading scientific theory is that the monks stopped the prince's daily regiment of blood-thinning aspirin. Thanks to his perceived ability to heal, Rasputin became a constant presence within the court, becoming so close to Alexandrova that the two were widely rumored to have begun an affair. Douglas Smith is the author of Rasputin, one of the definitive biographies of the Russian monk. Smith is among those who believe that Rasputin's oddities were because he was a part of the infamous Klist cult. He was a constant visitor to local brothels, as well as to the bedrooms of some of Russia's most influential women. Despite this, he maintained regular financial support to his wife and daughters, who seemed unconcerned with the spreading around of his love, with his wife claiming that the man has enough for all. Despite days filled with uncontrolled drug use and fornication, 
Rasputin, a mesmerizing figure, seems to have cast a spell over the royal family. Wit, an advisor during the Russo-Japanese War, claimed that from this point onward, the soft haze of mysticism refracts everything that Nicholas beholds. The influence of the mad monk Rasputin over the royal court would be another self-inflicted wound by the final ruler of the Romanov dynasty, the culmination of which would become fatal after the outbreak of World War I. The Russia that Vladimir sought to rule was in a sorry state, but Lenin and the Bolsheviks weren't in much better shape. He had been abandoned by the majority of those who sought to bring socialism into the world, but that didn't mean that he had given up on the cause that had dominated the last decade of his life. Still living in Geneva after the schism of the Second Congress, Nadia heard shocking reports of a series of strikes led by Father Grigory Gapon in St. Petersburg. Gapon sought to improve workers' conditions by directly appealing to the Tsar. Nicholas believed in the divine right of kings, the concept that monarchs were chosen in the womb to represent God on earth. Father Gapon sought to appeal to the religious face of the throne by writing, Sir, we, the workers and inhabitants of St. Petersburg, of various estates, our wives, our children, and our aged, helpless parents, come to thee, O sire, to seek justice and protection. We are impoverished, we are oppressed, overburdened with excessive toil, contemptuously treated, we are suffocating in despotism and lawlessness. We have no strength left and our endurance is at an end. We have reached that terrifying moment when death is better than prolongation of our unbearable sufferings. Nicholas was a paradox. His diaries showcase a paranoid individual who never felt adequate for the station he held. In public, however, he played the role of an unbending autocrat who was sanctioned by God to do whatever he wished. The private face of Nicholas was likely sympathetic to the workers, but the public face had to view such a claim, which included references to himself as a despot, as a direct threat to the continuation of the Romanov dynasty whose legacy he was tasked to maintain. Unable to reconcile his two minds on the issue, he left the day before the petitioner's planned march, ordering the military to just deal with it. Father Gaspon, whom Lenin had tried to recruit to the Bolsheviks, and whom the Akana had previously utilized as a secret agent to influence trade unionists, was now secretly being paid by the Japanese to lead the march. The religious leader surrounded himself with women and children, strategically placing them in the front of the column to deter a violent end. It didn't work. The impoverished workers were charged at by a regiment of cavalry troops. Soon afterwards, gunfire tore through the procession. More than 100 were killed in the event that became known in Russia as Bloody Sunday. Historian Victor Sebastian explains that this moment of barbaric excess was different from the others committed by Bloody Nicky and his relatives. He rationalizes that it was different because it took place in Russia's capital, where international journalists were on the scene. 
and the speed of communications meant the news was on the front pages around the world by the next day. The American ambassador, Robert McComerick, wrote to the president that Nicholas has lost absolutely the affection of the Russian people, and whatever the future for the dynasty, the Tsar will never be safe in the midst of his people. Lenin was among those who were convinced that this event in 1905 was the beginning of the end of the Tsars. Lenin was right about each assumption that led into that conclusion, but he had the wrong war. Lenin believed that the constant stream of bad news regarding the failing Russo-Japanese war combined with the repressive autocratic policies at home in conjunction with true suffering by the vast majority of the domestic population meant that the moment had arisen for the toppling of the Romanovs. He wrote that a military collapse in the Japan war is inevitable and with it will come a tenfold increase in unrest discontent, and rebellion. For that moment, we must prepare with all our energy. At that moment, one of these outbreaks will develop into a tremendous popular movement. At that moment, the proletariat will rise to take its place at the head of the insurrection. But neither Lenin's Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks, or the proletariat were ready for their first big chance. Lenin was, for the moment, living in Geneva, Switzerland, and thus largely powerless to influence the events that followed Bloody Sunday. Due to the distance, he was continuously days behind regarding the latest twists and turns. Rather than leading the people, he spent all day at the Geneva Central Library reading books about guerrilla warfare. He wrote frantic letters to comrades in Russia, demanding the creation of paramilitary units armed with rifles, revolvers, bombs, knives, knuckle dusters, rags soaked in petrol, ropes or rope ladders, shovels for building barricades, dynamite, cartridges, barbed wire, and tacks to use against the cavalry. The receivers of the letters had to likely imagine that Lenin had lost it as nearly everything on his list was illegal to possess or sell in Russia. Fighting in the city happened sporadically for the next five days, and strikes, a near constant at this point in Russia's history, would go on for another month. But the small fraction of Bolsheviks had no strength within Russia. They were stuck at the periphery, forced to watch rather than lead the action. On the ground, Lenin's forces felt that the best they could do to influence the events were to put out a few hundred leaflets. Lenin knew some of this, responding to a supporter who claimed that there was no chance of victory, with an unequivocal statement that victory was not the point at all. What do we care about victory, Lenin asked? That for us is not the point at all. What do we care about victory? We should not harbor any illusions. We are realists and let nobody imagine that we have to win. For that, we are still too weak. The point is not about winning, but about giving the regime a shake and attracting the masses to our movement. The uprising is what matters. To say that because we can't win, we shouldn't stage an insurrection, that is simply the talk of cowards. The eventual failure of the uprisings made it clear to all those watching that the revolutionaries had to be closer to the action the next time a spark lit. 
Trotsky immediately returned to Russia in order to take over the St. Petersburg Soviet. Lenin waited another ten months to return. Tsar Nicholas soothed his people's rage by agreeing to the presence of an advisory Duma, or Parliament, the relaxing of censorship regarding the press, and the amnesty of most political prisoners, which would have included Vladimir Ilyich. Lenin, though, was still far too suspicious of a trap, traveling home incognito under the name William Frey. His instincts were proven correct when he immediately picked up an Okrana tail at the Finland station. Here he met the man who would become Joseph Stalin for the first time. The meeting proved to be disappointing for both of them. Stalin, who hailed from Georgia, had continuously written articles in defense of Lenin against the Mensheviks. When he finally was able to meet his party's leader, he had expected a more charismatic man, writing that, I was hoping to see the mountain eagle of our party. I was hoping to see a great man, great not only politically, but if you will, physically. For in my imagination, I had pictured Lenin as a giant, stately, and imposing. What then was my disappointment to see a most ordinary-looking man, below average in height, in no way, in literally no way, distinguishable from ordinary mortals? Lenin, who was extremely skittish regarding his own safety, began to write for a new Bolshevik newspaper. The articles claimed that Nicholas's reforms were merely cosmetic, a fact that Nicholas would confirm with the 1906 firing of his liberal prime minister and the dissolvement of the Duma after only 75 days. The prime minister's replacement was Peter Stolpin, who had no tolerance for dissent. Secret courts were convened and more than 3,000 dissidents were hanged by what became known across Russia as Stolpin's necktie. Sebastian reveals that 28 out of the 87 provinces were placed under martial law at this point, and whole villages were razed to the ground as the Tsar went to war against his own people. Somehow in this violence, the sitting government of Russia failed to recognize the threat posed by Leon Trotsky. Although he was arrested early in 1906, he maintained access to and control of the St. Petersburg Soviet. This was in part because he was sentenced for the next few years of his life in the Peter and Paul Fortress jails in a cell which wasn't even locked at night. Trotsky and his wife were allowed to take walks together twice a week, during which they regularly played leapfrog in the yard. It was during this time that he wrote a book on the history of the St. Petersburg Soviet. Again, the Tsar's brutal crackdown on his people offered an opportunity for Lenin to spark his revolution. But again, he was woefully unprepared. In addition to lacking manpower, the Bolsheviks were flat broke. Sebastian tells us that as a solution, Lenin built what was in effect a criminal gang to steal on the party's behalf, perhaps the original model for the Russian Mafia. He didn't directly order any of the raids himself, but chose Lenin Krasin as head of the technical committee that was charged with funding the organization. Krasin's right-hand man was Joseph Stalin who planned and executed a number of daring raids to secure cash. 
This included robbing banks, steamships, post offices, and railway ticket offices. Faced with the immorality of the actions, Lenin admitted that yes, we steal, but we steal what has already been stolen. When Martov, the leader of the Mensheviks, claimed that Lenin was hurting the wider socialist movement, the Bolshevik leader responded that, you don't make a revolution wearing kids' gloves. For his part, Lenin did try other methods. He dined with highbrow capitalists at a political fundraiser in London, telling those that would listen that they would make more money from a Lenin-led Russia than one in the hands of the Tsar whose backwards economic policies left the nation in a state of perpetual poverty. Few were willing to listen, however, after the Daily Mail had labeled Russian socialists who resided in London as an alien menace, a nameless army from Russia, and called the gathering of the Fifth Party Congress as the Congress of Undesirables. The paper identified the delegates only to reveal that combined they had served more than 650 years either in jail or exile. The Daily Mail even described one delegate as a princess who always carries a bomb in her muff. The dinner raised next to nothing, and Lenin vowed to never debase himself in front of capitalists again. His next sinister plan was to have a Bolshevik manipulate the daughters of a millionaire who had made it big in the piano industry. The sisters' untimely death of their parents meant that both eligible ladies had fallen into a sizable inheritance. Lenin's plan was to make them fall in love with his agents, who would then marry the girls with the expressed purpose to legally rob them blind. The plan worked for the most part, at least until one of the agents married the unsuspecting girl and then rode off into the sunset with her and her money. Lenin was left fuming at the betrayal. The other agent succeeded, however, writing a check for $2 million directly to Lenin, who patted his agent on the back before calling him a scoundrel, which Lenin then followed up with, and that makes him an irreplaceable person, as a scoundrel might be what we need. By 1907, Lenin had inspired so much theft that the Okhrana declared Vladimir Olenov, alias Lenin, a writer on economic subjects, as the most dangerous and capable of all of the revolutionary leaders. In December, he shaved off his trademark beard and took on the identity of Professor Mule, a German geologist studying limestone deposits in Finland. During this time, Russia's war against the revolutionaries was tilted heavily in the Tsar's favor. Stolpin's necktie had reduced the socialist numbers from 140,000 to a mere 7,000 willing to claim support for Marxism. Lenin's newspaper circulated to just a mere 10,000 in Russia. It was at this low point that he let an Okhrana agent infiltrate his inner circle who subsequently persuaded Lenin to abandon his operations in favor of moving to Paris. It was in France that Lenin met the second great love of his life. Anessa was a Russian immigrant living in Paris while working for the Bolsheviks. 
Although the physical affair didn't begin for 18 months, Lennon was clearly smitten from the beginning. Sebastian describes Anessa as by far the most glamorous of all the Russian emigres in the radical circles of Paris. A sophisticated, chic, 35-year-old with a slim figure, chestnut hair, and bright green eyes, she was exuberant, highly intelligent, witty, and invariably wore a smile on her face. She was striking and vibrant, more overtly sexy than the run-of-the-mill Olgas and Tatianas who frequented the Bolshevik cafes of Paris. Nadia seemed to be aware of her husband's infatuation with Anessa, and although they don't appear to have ever talked about it, she seemed to have accepted the infidelity as something that Lenin needed. This may have been in part because of her own declining health due to what turned out to be Graves' disease. Rather than resent the younger woman, Nadia and Anessa became inseparable friends, as the younger woman became the cornerstone for this period of Lenin's life, invaluable to his own state of being as well as for the revolution. Anessa herself had an interesting backstory. She had previously left her husband for his brother, with whom she had moved to Paris, but was soon left alone with six children from the two brothers after the one whom she had an affair with had passed away from an illness. She never remarried and spent the next few years attempting to put her newfound impassioned belief in feminism into action, initially working at rehabilitating French prostitutes before converting to Marxism upon reading Lenin's book, The Development of Capitalism in Russia. The years spent in Paris sidetracked Lenin, exactly what the spy in his inner circle had hoped for. He opened a school for revolutionaries in 1911, and had Anessa select the 18 young students whom he would indoctrinate to his cause. Lenin would provide 30 different economic lectures to the students over the next two years, and Nadia was the chosen leader for how to run an illegal newspaper and network of agents. Also in 1911, Stoypin was assassinated in a terror attack at the Kiev Opera House. The death of the man allowed Lenin to make a sudden about-face and grant seven Bolsheviks permission to join the Duma. The leader of the group that he had selected, however, was another planted Okhrana agent, who quickly betrayed the real name of Lenin's Russian agents and their safe houses. Malinovsky, the double agent, managed to play both sides for a number of years, delivering scathing criticism against the government in order to maintain the good graces with the Bolsheviks. Eventually, however, the police thought he was too damaging to the regime and paid him off to flee the country. With the threat of revolution receding, Tsar Nicholas again relaxed his press censorship, and Lenin designed his final party newspaper, which was published under the title Pravada, or Truth. The paper mostly stayed within the rules, but still managed to get banned nine separate times. On each occasion, Lenin slightly changed its name while maintaining the word truth somewhere in the title. Eventually, the paper was allowed to legally operate in Russia without hindrance. Its 60,000 copies sold out each day within a few hours. 
Life wasn't easy working for the paper, however, as all Krana agents were now securely implanted within Lenin's inner circle. Proof of which came in the fact that 36 different editors were arrested during the paper's first 38 editions. Still, the publication kept printing, and would put out 636 issues between its formation and the outbreak of World War I. In June of 1912, Lenin abandoned his school in Paris to oversee the paper. The closest he felt he could get to Russia was Krakow, Poland, which lies a mere 10 kilometers from the Russian border. Everything in world history changed on June 28, 1914. The day in which the heir to the Habsburg throne, Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated by Gavrilo Princep of the Black Hand, a Serbian terror organization. Militarism, an alliance system, imperialism, and nationalism all contributed to the outbreak of the war, and Tsar Nicholas II was front and center for the escalation. Austria-Hungary demanded the heads of those responsible, Serbia was either unwilling or unable to comply, and a 30-day ultimatum began ticking down. Citing pan-Slavism as well as a shared religion, Russia indicated through a full-scale military buildup that it would defend the territorial integrity of Serbia, which at the time was controlled by Austria-Hungary. Thus, an internal matter shifted immediately to an international crisis. The Russian army, with the strength of 1.4 million soldiers, was mistakenly believed to be the strongest army in the world, far too strong for the Austro-Hungarian Empire to handle on their own. Thus, Germany barged headfirst into the standoff, demanding to know the intentions of the Russians who were initially determined to just send the issue to an international tribunal. But as we all know, it never reached The Hague. Instead, it quickly turned into one of the most devastating wars in human history. History has 2020 vision, but there were many in Russia whose eyesight in the moment was just as clear. Witt, for instance, the former war advisor who had tried to contain the damage of the Russo-Japanese conflict, advised the French ambassador that from his point of view, the war was madness, and that Russia could hope for nothing from the war. Rasputin also warned that any conflict that broke out involving the Germans would be the end of the Russian royal family. But from the vantage point of all outside observers, the Russians looked formidable with more than three million additional troops that were mobilized during pre-war preparation. From the outset of the war, the Tsar was worried about the splendid little war being used to provide cover for revolutionaries. Six days after war was declared, Lenin's residence in Poland was raided under suspicions that he was operating as a German foreign agent. The Tsar had fired the first shot at his former enemies at the same time that his forces moved into Serbia. This fourth imprisonment for Lenin was once again an enjoyable experience. Placed in a cell with petty thieves, drunks, and vagrants, Lenin dusted off his law degree and went to work for free, trying to help them with their cases. He spent 11 days in jail before accepting a deal to depart Poland for Switzerland. 
the excitement for war dwindled in Russia after a mere four weeks. The Russian army still contained most of the soldiers who had lost to the Japanese, and they were able to quickly identify a losing cause. World War I, however, was on a scale that had never been seen before. The Battle of Tannenberg became one of the nation's worst defeats, wiping out their entire second army, and resulting in the deaths of more than 160,000 Russians. German General Paul von Hindenburg recalled having to remove the mounds of enemy corpses piled in front of his trenches, a clear field of fire against fresh assaulting Russian wave attacks. The victory was so decisive that the Russian commander went out to the woods behind his command post and shot himself in the head. Four months into the war, the Russians had lost 1.2 million men, nearly the same number that had previously constituted the largest army in the world. It only worsened from there. Sebastian describes the replacement soldiers as lacking the professional characteristics needed to fight. The historian pulls no punches, writing that many could not even load their rifles. Such people could not really be considered soldiers at all. The regular army vanished, replaced by an army of ignoramuses. The reserves in the rear were the men who were the breeding ground for mass desertion, discontent, and finally mutiny, which created the revolution. These were the men who would become Lenin's willing accomplices. Nicholas II attempted to do what leaders should. He took personal control of the army and left the Winter Palace in order to lead the troops from the front. Except he didn't know anything about war. The army ran out of equipment quicker than it ran out of soldiers. Sebastian writes that there were 6.5 million men under arms in October 1914, but only 4.6 million rifles issued. At the time that war broke out, Russia had a mere 679 motor cars and just two motorized ambulances, a clear indication that Russia was not the nation that Marx had predicted would be the first to hand power over to the masses of their urban workers. Industry was unable to produce enough ammunition to meet the demand, and by mid-October 1914, some soldiers were ordered to limit themselves to firing just 10 rounds a day during battle. For the regiments that were short on rifles, Nicholas ordered them to march in single-file lines with the first soldier in custody of the rifle. After he was summarily dispatched, the second soldier in line would pick up the rifle and continue their slow march towards death. And I mean slow. The soldiers were not allowed to charge at the enemy for fear that they would run out of gas before reaching them. Thus, they marched in orderly fashion slowly towards their inevitable death. On and on it would continue as the single rifle would be claimed by the next victim in line. Desertion became so commonplace and guns so rare within the Russian military that Nicholas placed the limited number of machine guns in the back of the marching forces, so as to shoot any Russians that prematurely fled to the field. Thus, the Russian soldiers were caught between two enemy forces, the Kaiser and the Tsar. While Nicholas was far afield overseeing one of the worst war stories in history, 
Gossip was spreading through court about the Tsarina, a native German and the sex-crazed mad monk Rasputin. Few could understand why Rasputin was tolerated within the palace, but that was because the royal family kept their son-slash-heir's hemophilia secret from all. Thus, the true rationale for his enduring presence was never known, providing fertile ground for baseless rumors. In addition to a possible affair, Russians in court were questioning whether the royal family's actions in the war were treasonous or just plain stupidity. The record suggests the latter. The war created fertile ground for the revolution and Vladimir Lenin from Switzerland claimed that if not for the war, Russia might have gone on living for years, maybe decades, without a revolution against the capitalists. A second opportunity had presented itself, and he was determined to not miss again. But he was limited in his ability to create the spark necessary. Pravada had been shuttered at the beginning of the conflict. Nadia was suffering from a painful reoccurrence of her Graves disease, and he lost his mother, who had been his financial banker for all of his life. All of this happened in 1916. Lenin painted himself as staunchly anti-war, something that he was criticized for by a number of Mensheviks who still wished to trigger a populist revolt. Insulting a war effort that resulted in the loss of so many of one's compatriots is hardly a way to bring them to your side. From the beginning, however, Lenin was crystal clear. He wanted his country to lose the war, and he was okay with them losing horrifically. His extreme position further alienated him from the Mensheviks as he looked around for potential allies for his position. They quickly narrowed down to just one nation, Germany. Accepting open assistance from the Germans, however, would be perceived as treason against the Russian people. Distinctions matter quite a bit to individuals, even small distinctions. You and I likely agree that continuously plotting to overthrow the leader of one's country is the very definition of treason. So why would Lenin care so much about the perception of accepting Germany's help for the task? In Lenin's mind, and in the mind of his movement, the Tsar was not the legitimate ruler of the Russian people. Thus, overthrowing him and his family wasn't an act of disloyalty. Accepting help from the nation-state that was actively murdering your people on the battlefields of Europe would serve to betray the people, rather than the illegitimate state. For Lenin, that was a bridge too far. Or at least it was initially. That doesn't mean that the Germans didn't try. A Ukrainian man codenamed Parvis developed the concept of permanent revolution the central portion of what would become Trotskyism. Seeking to light the spark of permanent revolution in Russia, Parvis went to the Germans with an 18-page memorandum detailing how Russian revolutionaries could destabilize Russia from within by leading strikes, mutinies, and acts of sabotage. His presentation was good enough to land him the equivalent of $4 million. His first stop after the bank was to find Vladimir Lenin. To his credit, Lenin turned Parvis's money down in 1915, hoping that the Tsar would lose the war on his own. 
World War I, however, was still dragging on two years later despite the incompetence of Nicholas's forces. Two days before the world closed the books on 1916, the Russian court lost the wisdom and sage advice of Rasputin. The story of his death is more than worth veering off of our chosen subject. The assassination was undertaken in a supposed attempt to save the Tsar and his wife, the Tsarina, from the drugged-up mystic who was incorrectly believed to have been responsible for a number of Nicholas's poor decisions, when in actuality his advice was typically good. Prince Felix Yusupov was one of the conspirators, and he revealed all the lurid details which lend credence to Dave Chappelle's infamous Rick James line, The cocaine is a hell of a drug. Yusupov lured the monk to a cellar, where he was presented with poisoned cakes and wine. The poison proved ineffective after two and a half hours, and Yusupov had to run upstairs to secure a gun. After arriving back to the cellar, he shot Rasputin twice in the side. The mystic was dead, or at least that's what Yusupov thought. They undressed him so that one conspirator could make a late-night appearance disguised as Rasputin arriving safely home. Next, the prince and another conspirator dragged the body upstairs, only to have Rasputin open his eyes while letting out an inhuman shriek. With each retelling of the story, Yusupov made Rasputin into something more than a mere mortal, describing him as having inhuman strength as he tossed him aside like a ragdoll. Throwing his would-be killer off of him, he escaped out of a side door on all fours, screaming like a wild animal. The conspirators shot at the creature with a third bullet hitting him in the back and a fourth in the head. One story tells that it was Olga, the Tsar's oldest daughter, that managed to fire the headshot to put down the beast. His body was then disposed of in a nearby frozen river. Olga's account claims that he was still breathing and thrashing at the time that his tied-up body was released into its watery grave. This crazy story only got bigger with each retelling, and today Rasputin has earned the title of the most unkillable human, and even landed a role as one of the lead villains in the Kingman movie. Thus, it isn't a stretch to say that you might be willing to put up with another version of the tale. My favorite depiction of the death of Rasputin comes from Timothy Dickinson, and it can be found on YouTube by searching for Great and Telling Tales, the death of Rasputin. Dickinson's delivery is on point, and I won't try to recreate it here, but I will use his words to provide his version of the events that occurred on December 30th, 1916. Dickinson begins by reminding us that Rasputin was a filthy, womanizing, but personally formidable holy man who attached himself to the imperial court of the Emperor Nicholas and his wife, largely because it would seem that he had some genuine, though unexplained, capacity to allay the bleeding of their son, who's a hemophiliac. With the outbreak of the First World War, Rasputin, who had been a bitter opponent of Russia's involvement in the outset, became more and more hated. So in due course, Prince Yusov 
determined that since the imperial family could not be persuaded to banish Rasputin, he had to be killed. They gave a great party for him with valley girls and fed him little cakes laced with arsenic, and the monk just gobbled them up. Sitting there with little bits of cream and cake running down the corners of his mouth, like some great unkillable bear, they came and shot him. Like a robot running down, he slows and pitches forward for good. I suspect he shot two or three times as he lies there too. He's probably dead, though one doesn't know. His system must have been quite extraordinary. They drag him off, cut a hole in the ice in the river Neva, and stuff him under. If that hadn't finished him yet, that did. The video then cuts to a fish poking the body of the monk, only to see his eyes open once more. Two days later, the calendar turned to the fateful year of 1917, one which found Vladimir and Nadia living outside of their means. The death of his mother had robbed him of his benefactor, and Nadia had to work with private students in order to continue to put food on the table. She had become the type of part-time revolutionary that Vladimir had long detested. The Bolsheviks' party's funds were so low that he once suggested to Anessa that she carry the party's entire funds in her purse rather than risk investing it in a bank. Life in Switzerland was tough, but those that suffered within the heart of Russia fared worse. Black markets had popped up throughout the motherland designed solely for the sale of homemade vodka, which had been banned since the start of the conflict. The price of bread had risen 500%, and nearly every medicine spiked in price. Sebastian tells us that in January of 1917, an average working woman in St. Petersburg would put in a daily 10-hour shift, and then spend 40 hours a week queuing up for food. The suicide rate in Russia tripled during the war years. The banning of vodka was one of the worst moves that Nicholas's government could have made. Taxes on the beverage shockingly totaled 20% of the entire revenue of the Russian state. This created such a gap in taxable income that the Tsar was forced to borrow massive amounts of foreign money, which in turn spiked inflation and caused more Russians to turn to black market vodka in order to drown out their daily sorrows. There was so much discontentment that 250,000 angry Russian soldiers were crowded into Petrograd in order to deter any revolutionary acts. Again. The move wasn't the right one to make, as one general described the decision as putting kindling wood next to a powder keg. Dakarana also saw the danger looming after hearing numerous reports from agents who had infiltrated the Russian barracks. They warned the generals that if there is a revolution, it would be supported by two-thirds of active soldiers. The first stage of the coup would begin on March 2nd, but it wouldn't be started or directed by the Bolsheviks. It began in the same manner as the French Revolution, with women gathering, this time on International Women's Day, to protest the lack of bread. 
It finished with a wholesale mutiny in the army and the rise of a provisional government in Russia that inspired riots in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Most significantly, the Tsar was questioning whether or not to renounce the throne. Like all authoritarians, Nicholas couldn't survive the defection of the military, who, after three days of attempting to suppress bread riots, joined in. Soviets, the Russian word for democratic councils, were set up, and on March 14th, 12 days after the beginning of demonstrations, the Petrograd Soviet issued what was known as Order Number 1. The pseudo-law instructed soldiers to obey only orders that did not conflict with the directives of the Soviets. They had claimed sovereignty for themselves. The next day, Nicholas knew that the jig was up and formally abdicated, bringing the Romanov dynasty to an end. Their rule came to a sudden end, with one member of the court writing that it was like a train crash in the night, like a bridge crumbling beneath your feet, like a house falling down. The coup was not bloodless. 1,433 died in Petrograd, and another 3,000 lost their lives in Moscow. The Tsar and his family would later pay the ultimate price in 1918 for letting go the reins of power. Once again, the opportunity for true change had come to Russia. And again, Vladimir Lenin was neither there nor close enough to control the strings. He was desperate to return to Russia as quickly as possible, which meant that this time he felt obligated to take Germany up on its offer of transport through their lines in order to facilitate a timely arrival. One of Churchill's best-known history books, written in 1929, years before World War II would put him in charge of England, included the passage the Germans turned upon Russia the most grisly of all weapons. They transported Lenin in a sealed train like a plague from Switzerland into Russia. It was all done in secret in order to prevent outsiders from knowing that Lenin had been rendered so impotent that he felt it necessary to accept aid from the enemy. It was clear to each side involved that the two weren't entering into a permanent alliance. German guards accompanied him on the sealed train for the seven-day voyage, and on day one they used a piece of chalk to draw a literal line through their shared corridor, denoting which side was the German side, and which side would be the Russian living space. Sixty conspirators joined Lenin, who along with Nadia received their own second-class compartment. It was here that Lenin frantically scribbled out the April Theses a work that in 10,000 words completely overturns all of Marx's theories regarding natural economic progression and the need for an established industrial revolution to have occurred before a communist revolution. Lenin was rewriting everything that he had believed in order to make his theories fit the moment. Twice during the voyage, the British had opportunities to prevent his arrival, but hesitated each time history would have been irrevocably changed if they hadn't. The first thing he did upon landing in Russia was to pick up an edition of Pravada, 
which had been immediately legalized after the Tsar's abdication. Stalin was editing it at this point, and Lenin fumed upon seeing words written to the effect that the new government should continue World War I. Lenin's public thought on the matter was that these idiots may ruin everything. After finishing berating his lieutenants, he assembled a crowd, jumped up onto a chair, and told the Bolsheviks that the worldwide revolution has already dawned. Germany is seething. Any day now, the whole of European capitalism may crash. I still don't know if you have faith in all the promises of the provisional government. What I know for certain, though, is that when they make sweet promises, you are being deceived in the same way that the entire Russian population is being deceived. The people need peace. The people need bread and land. They give you war and hunger. And the landowners still have all the land. Clearly, Vladimir Lenin wasn't satisfied with the successful overthrow of the Russian autocracy. But that shouldn't come as a surprise. His writings continuously show off the fact that he was a true believer in his version of socialist revolution. While his journey may have begun with his brother's death by order of the Tsar, Vladimir had not chosen his life's course of action in a blind fit of rage. His brother's books had opened his eyes to a world of theoretical possibilities. This is one of the only qualities I respect about Vladimir Ilyich Olenov. History's dictators are filled with utopian visions that are immediately betrayed by each and every single action taken. Hitler the atheist talked about paving the path for the return of Jesus. Fidel promised an end to government corruption, only to ensure that each financial link in the chain connected directly to the Castro family. Mao promised to end the feudal suffering of the agricultural peasants. Instead, he forced them to starve to death in order to export their produce to the world. Lenin, however, stayed true to his vision throughout. It just so happened that his vision had always included violence. One night after gaining ultimate power through the October Revolution, he wrote a letter to his local librarian asking for permission to keep the book that he had checked out overnight. In the letter, he revealed that the efforts of the revolution and the civil war that followed kept him from being able to read during the day. Thus, he requested, rather than demanded, a special exemption from the rule to keep his book for another day. Lenin the dictator viewed himself in at least one instance to be at the same level as a librarian. Vladimir had a vision, and had set himself on the path to bring it into existence. Unfortunately, Lenin's path was filled with the blood of his own people. We'll look at how he navigated the bodies that were discarded during the October Revolution and the Red-White Civil War that followed in our next episode.